Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Beef Bits Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeff Lemkuler, Extension Professor at the University of Kentucky. I'll be sharing general information related to beef cattle production, updates on current events impacting the industry, new research, and other topics that I hope you find useful. I'll be joined by various guests to bring different views and insights on these topics. I hope you will follow or subscribe to the Beef Bits Podcast, and be sure to give us feedback and let us know how we're doing. The following is part three of my series with Dr. Colt Knight, Livestock Specialist at the University of Maine. In this session, we discuss marketing of agricultural products and direct marketing of meat products to consumers in Maine. I hope you enjoyed this session. Again, apologize for the less than ideal quality as we recorded it outside. Well, that's excellent. So, um... Let's talk a little bit then about the, the livestock industry here in Maine in general. We, we're joined here today. You can probably hear them, but there's some uh, pasture poultry walking around here. There's a few guineas coming in behind us. There's a few little piglets running around every once in a while. But uh, tell us a little bit about the livestock industry up here in Maine and what you've learned since you've been up here as the livestock specialist and, and associate extension professor in livestock. Yeah, the livestock industry is small scale in Maine. And... Historically, you know, up and through about the 70s, Maine was the broiler capital of the world. So as, as Jeff and I are driving around Maine, we'll see these, these old metal three-story buildings with a bunch of windows in them. Those were all poultry houses. And then the, the energy inflation in the 70s, it just cost too much to heat those. So all the, the broiler industry moved out of Maine. And then, and then our top two livestock production was egg laying and uh, dairy. So, you know, maybe 30 years ago, we had 450 dairies in Maine. Today, I think we have about 170, maybe 174. And just like everywhere else, the small-scale dairies are, are leaving. You know, folks are, are leaving the dairy farm, and just the, the farms are getting bigger. And I guess with the efficiencies and, and, and genetic selection of the dairy industry, we're, we're producing more milk with less cows. So we're seeing less and less cows every year in Maine. We're probably producing more milk, but with a whole lot less cows. Uh, Jeff and I were just looking at the, the cattle stats for Maine, and, and we've lost about 8,000 cows in the last year or so, and that's just from, from the dairies leaving. Because we usually have around 80,000 cows, about eleven to 15,000 dedicated beef cows, uh, and then somewhere around twenty or thirty thousand dairy calves that are being raised for beef, and then about the same number of uh, milking. Cows. Yeah, about thirty, twenty, thirty thousand milking cows. Yeah. So, and that that trend is probably not unique to Maine. I wouldn't think so. No, I, I think that's just the vertical integration of the the dairy business that's causing that. I think a lot of the, the bigger commercial dairies are flocking to to drier states with better tax incentives and lower feed costs. You know, like Idaho, Texas, those areas are getting a big bump in, in dairy. And we've we've seen some movement even of some of those to the Midwest simply yeah. for water uh, yeah. access. And water's gonna be a big issue out west. Yeah. So when when you think about Maine too, I guess, you know, we forget that Maine's relatively uh, wooded yet as a state. Like 90-something percent forested in Maine. 
it's it's we, we live in the woods up here right you know it's the pine tree state for a reason and so you've got these small openings these smaller well in some areas smaller farms that are you know in these open pastures um, yeah you know historically when they settled maine it was all sheep production for wool you know there were woolen mills everywhere in maine i heard in the late 1700s most of maine was cleared off just for for sheep production but that you know that's we don't raise sheep in this country anymore like we used to so it, that kind of all went away and then uh, pulp mills and wood mills replaced the woolen mills and then as we started outsourcing paper to china and stuff the, even the, the paper and pulp mills have, have gone away to a large extent in maine they're starting to come back a little bit but not nothing like it was a hundred years ago so if you were to look at um, then the the farms here, how would you describe a typical uh, livestock operation here in Maine? Most livestock operations in Maine are diversified small-scale farms, uh, farm-to-table type places. We do not have a traditional sale barn or auction like you do in the southern or midwestern states. So there's no, there's no auction market per se for taking calves. So if it, you know, farms don't raise feeder calves to sell at auction. There's there's a couple independently run auctions in the spring and fall, but, you know, they're running a handful of cows through there, at most probably 80 these days. So there's there's not that market for cattle. And feed costs too much. We don't live close to the Midwest, so, you know, feed is expensive here. So most folks have got to corner some kind of, of niche, you know, whether it's grass-fed organic, all-natural, heritage breed, something like that. And, and, and most stuff is direct marketed to the consumer, so a lot of custom slaughter, a lot of freezer beef. Uh, some folks are selling to restaurants or, or grocery stores, but most of it is direct to consumer, locally sourced. Uh, a few of the more progressive and larger beef cattle farms are able to uh, do some online marketing, and make sales that they're being they're they're highly successful because they're hitting that grass-fed organic or all-natural niche market raised in beautiful state of maine kind of thing happy cows because they're not living inside that kind of deal and then the other the other side of things is we just got a tremendous amount of homesteaders backyard producers and especially since the pandemic you know folks that might have had chickens, decided, oh, I'm going to keep a couple pigs or I'm going to keep a steer. And those folks find, oh, I'm selling my chickens, but they also want some pork. I better get some pigs. And then, or they start out as selling beef and they're like, I love your beef, but I'd also like to be able to get my eggs here. So they add a few laying hens or they like, you know, it'd be great if we get some pork chops too. So they add pigs. And, and so our little, our little farm stands are growing from just calling your local local beef guy and getting a side of beef to now they're 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 putting a little shed in and the freezers and a self-checkout and you're able to go in and buy buy all your meat needs and and during the pandemic we saw two or three hundred percent increase in demand for local meat and i assumed that demand would fall once the pandemic was over because local costs so much more than the commodity stuff you buy at the grocery store and it dropped a little bit but not a lot it's it's staying strong. So, you know, during the pandemic, there weren't enough beef cows in Maine to meet the demand. People were buying 
everything they could get their hands on to be able to sell locally. Wow, that's impressive. And we've seen it, right? And on the drives around here close to your place, there's there's a little stand that has farm fresh eggs with a cooler and they just leave your money there and there's fresh vegetables and roadside stands. Yeah. And and the the greenhouse and vegetable and orchard industry in Maine's pretty big. Yeah. So there's definitely opportunities along that line. So when you when you say that there's more of that kind of direct to consumers, um, are people starting out more at a farmer's market level? Or what's the farmer's market level options like? Uh, you know, farmer's markets run really different up here than they do probably where you're from. You know, like I grew up in West Virginia, and if you wanted to go to the farmer's market to sell your, your wares, you showed up at the farmer's market, and you paid five bucks, and they, they told you where to park. Uh, up here in Maine... You have to apply to be in the farmer's market. And if someone's selling beef, then you can't sell beef at that market either. So it's only one commodity per person. So there's no competition there. So a few folks that have like the bigger cities, farmer's markets wrapped up, they can really make a decent amount of money selling at those farmer's markets on the weekends during the spring, summer, and fall. Uh, you can you can really clean up there, but if you weren't the first person to keep your spot there, then you don't have that that avenue. Uh, so we see a lot of direct marketing to consumers through social media and 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 farm stands because Maine is a big tourist state. So during the summer, we've got a lot of people driving on our back roads going to camp or the lake or Katia National Park, and so. Just putting a farm stand on the side of the road, a lot of people will just randomly stop during the summertime. Might not have that avenue in the wintertime, but you you got your friends, neighbors, and, and locals that you can keep you through the winter and then really hitting those tourist do- dollars hard in the, in the summer. So, so when we think about meat and we think about processing, um, if, if you're going to sell direct to consumers, kind of got two options, right? You've got uh, maybe a by the cut or by the animal slash carcass or a half a beef or a quarter or yep. something like that. And so what's the differences in the processing requirements here in Maine for selling directly with cuts versus maybe an animal and doing halves or quarters? Yeah, and so in Maine we have a little bit more flexibility than you do in Kentucky because we also have state inspection. Uh, so if, if, if you're just wanting to sell a whole or a half or a quarter of your beef to your friends or neighbors, uh, you can you can have those animals processed through the custom exempt clause. And you, you sell the animal by the carcass weight, and then whoever buys the animal pays whatever the processing fees are. Uh, if you are going to sell individual cuts of meat, you have to have the, the animal... Uh, process through USDA or state inspection. So if you're going to sell it within the state of Maine, you can use a state inspected facility. Or if you want to sell across state lines, it has to be USDA inspected. Uh, And then there's a small license fee to sell meat retail. And you have to have like a certified scale to be able to weigh the the meat. And so it's a little bit more expensive to, to sell cuts of meat versus the whole animal, but there's also more profit margin in selling the retail cuts. 
There's also more risk because you have to maintain your freezers. We don't have the most reliable power grid in Maine, so I always yell at producers, if you're going to do that, you need to have a, an alarm that goes straight to your cell phone. Because if you lose a freezer full of four beeves, that's a lot of money that's down the point. toilet. And, and you can get those relatively inexpensive today. That's yeah, they're, they're not expensive. Yeah. The backup generator maybe is an option too, right? Mm-hmm. So if, if you had to, um, to think about the average number of animals, maybe uh, it's going to vary, but if, what would you say the number of beef cows would be on a, on a typical farm up here? I, usually 20 or less yeah. would be average. Our biggest producer is a feed yard in northern Maine. They, they only feed about 2,400 cows at most a year. I think our next biggest feed yard is one of our local meat processors that also has a little feed yard out back. He probably does four or five hundred a year. I think the biggest cow-calf operation we have is around two hundred. And, and so that that smaller uh, farm system approach too is, you know, like you said, after um, the pandemic, and there's a greater interest in homesteading and that. You know, those those operations may just have a couple cows, right? Yeah. They, they might go buy like three dairy calves and raise them up for beef. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. So when we think about um, uh, mentioning feed and the difference in cost potentially in feed up here, because we're not in the corn belt and a lot of that has to be shipped in, um, you know, you're, you're looking probably at a different price point on selling product then too, right? Yeah. So... You know, I would say our feed costs per ton are three times what yours are. At least double, but maybe three times more. And so, you know, I my personal pigs, uh, I'm selling those for three, four, five dollars a pound, depending on how we, we process them. Uh, and, you know, the commodity market on pigs might be 75 cents a pound. So, a lot more input costs. So we have to we have to charge a lot more, and that's because we charge a lot more. We have to have some kind of, of niche to to demand that premium price. So even the processing cost, though, I think that's that's something that people don't realize that um, you know there's a lot of labor that goes into mm-hmm. processing an animal, and there's a lot of equipment and freezers and that. But you know, for us, it's probably around that six. To seventy cents um, a pound on a carcass basis, and um, and we're probably a dollar or a little over a dollar a pound. So we're we're probably thirty or forty percent higher than you on processing fees. Yeah, and so right there in and of itself, when you think about it, you know, people begin to say, "Well, why is it so much more?" But you know, they don't understand what input costs are, and processing yep. costs. So there, there's not that. You're trying to reap these huge benefit, huge profit benefit, if you will, per animal. It's just trying to work a small margin in there, but cover the expenses. Yep. Yeah, you know, on, on the larger farms down south, they're they're working on the economy of scale. So the only re- only way they can make money is raise more animals. And, and up here, the only way we can make more money is if we have a premium product that we can demand a higher price for, because we can't compete in the commodity market at all. So if, if you had to um, kind of make a uh, couple of tips to somebody that was going to start into maybe direct sales of meat, uh, what's what would be one of your first recommendations for somebody looking at that? 
uh, develop a marketing and advertising plan. You know, you really need to know what your input costs are. You have to know what your break-even costs are. Uh, that way you know what to sell it for. And don't sell yourself short. You know, I, Jeff and I grew up on a farm, so we're cheap. So we're always thinking, I wouldn't pay that. But that doesn't mean that people aren't willing to pay a higher price. And, and some of the people willing to pay a higher price, if you're not charging a higher price, they look at it and say that it must be an inferior product because they're not charging the higher price. And so don't be afraid to charge what your product's worth. And make sure you mentioned break-even, but it was one of the first things in the very first job interview I had. I got stuck in a pickup truck with a farmer, farmer feeder and... Uh, I asked him if he, you know, had calculated his break-evens and that. He said, Lim Cooler, if you're going to talk about break-evens, I'll guarantee you won't get this job because I'm not doing anything for break-even. <laughs> so, you know, build a profit in when you do your break-even yep. calculations. Too. Including your labor. Right. If, if you're not paying yourself in, in your calculations, then you're losing money. I, I guarantee it. I, I've worked with a lot of smaller producers. I think they're afraid to look at how much they have put into their animals because if they really did they'd find they're just moving money around and they're not actually making making anything so being a farmer you know some folks look at it as a higher calling but it's also a business and if you don't treat it like a business it, it'll fail like businesses that don't get handled properly so I, I like that approach, and I like the comment that you made, a, a marketing and advertising plan, because too often we think that if we just produce it, somebody will buy it. Yeah. If you build it, they will come. It, it doesn't work that way. you got to market things. Yeah. And then I think sometimes you'll find if, if you tell the story of your farm, uh, people are more willing to, to buy your story than they are your product. So, so, so craft your story and figure out how to tell your story, whether it's through social media or a video playing on a TV at your local farmer's market, something so that people know who you are and what you stand for. And, you know, folk, there's been some market research, you know, is it more important to be certified organic, all natural, this and that. And I think some of the market research shows People want to know that their that your animals are raised in a healthy, happy environment more than they do organic. And so, a lot of folks just take organic as a proxy to mean that the animals are raised in a happy environment. But if you tell people and show people that your your animals are are raised in a in a good environment and treated well, uh, that's what they want to see. Yep. They don't need the label if if they know. They know, they know your story and they know the animal welfare is there. They don't need those extra labels. And it's not that we're diminishing one product over the other or one production system over the other. It's really just, I think what you're, what you're you know, saying is that there's the opportunity to build confidence in, in the producer of that yeah. product. And that's what we need to think about. Because a lot of times we don't want to do that, right? We don't want to be self-promoting. No. But we need to be. Yeah. So that marketing, and that's, I think that was a really good way to start it out. Let's know what your product's going to have to sell for first and how you're going to advertise it. Yeah. So what other, what other tips would you give as you think about starting into this? 
we had the enterprise budget discussion about so you can figure out how much. I, I think starting small and building up to a larger, I, a lot of times I see folks, they want to go out, borrow a lot of money, they get in a lot of debt, and then they realize they can't ever raise enough animals to get out of that debt. I, I think if you start small and build up, you know, maybe you got to work a town job until you can build the farm up big enough, but, but grow without the debt if possible. You mean I shouldn't go out and buy that brand new tractor and that hay equipment for my 14-acre farm right away? Or or the $80,000 F-250. <laughs> yeah. Sink, sink <laughs> and I, I don't remember exactly who told me this. It was a good a good take-home point. But, but invest money in things that make money first. Yeah. Not depreciating value. Yeah. And equipment depreciates a lot. Exactly. So, you know, good piece of used equipment if you need it. Yep. Um, learn to do some of the maintenance yourself if you can. Absolutely. And, um, you know, then, then think about how you can use the dollars you have or make the loans that maybe you have to take out on things that can service the, the debt. Yeah. Um, so what about building rapport with your meat processor? That, that's probably something that folks don't think about either when they're starting to that. That's something you hit on a really good point there. And for the last couple of years, I've actually been doing some some extension programming on on working with meat processors, and and we called it what to expect from the meat processor and what the meat processor expects from you, because it's it's a double sided coin, right? Uh, I found that a lot of producers aren't educated on on their actual yields that they should be getting back from their animals, or They've got heritage animals, and they're taking yields from feedlot cattle in Texas, and they're not the same. You know, there's there's going to be a, a five six percent discrepancy right there, and so we we've really been working with processors because they get tired of getting those irate phone calls from producers. You know, there we have very few processors in Maine, and most people want to bring their animals in the fall so they don't have to carry them through the winter. And so a lot of those fall spots are booked up a year to two years in advance. And so new producers will go buy a pig in the spring, and then two weeks before it's ready to be processed, they start calling the processors, and they're like, we don't have anything till February. And so they get mad at the processor for not taking their pig right away because they don't know. Or the processors, you know, they see animals that aren't, they don't have proper condition. They're not old enough. They're not big enough. And then, then when the consumer wants to know, why did I only get 200 pounds of meat off of this steer? You know, you stole my meat. And, you know, no, that's not what happened. Your, your animal wasn't ready. It didn't have good dressing percentage. It didn't have the body condition. And so the processors want me to educate the beef or the producers on how to better raise their animals so they get better quality product in the end and then the meat and then the farmers all want me to build new processing plants to expand that capacity to expand the capacity so that when they call they don't have to get on a waiting list and and to be honest we just don't have enough animals in Maine to open more processing plants because the processing plant has to be busy all year not just in the fall 
if you're just busy in the fall and you have to lay people off in the late winter and spring, uh, you can never build the business because that is a highly skilled profession. And if you spend six months training a guy and then have to lay him off, you can't just rehire. He's not going to come back to work for you. And then I assume you have, um, you know, the, the hunting side that comes in. Yeah, a lot of our custom processors, they're processing deer and moose in the fall. So that takes that takes that out for that period of time. Yep. So so becoming educated on how to work with your with your processor and expectations yep. is probably key and it saves a lot of um, maybe uh, like you said, high rate phone calls. But it just yep. it saves some stress over things if you're knowledgeable about that before you start. Yeah. You know, and, and there's the reason processors get mad at you if you bring four animals instead of three is they don't have room in their freezer. Their cooler is full already. And they, they've scheduled you that year in advance because logistically they have to do that. Showing up late, you know, that's a problem. You know, a lot of folks don't know you can't kill ruminants and non-ruminants on the same floor unless you completely strip it and sanitize it. So if you bring your pigs in late and miss the morning the morning period where they're doing pigs, they got to wait till the next day. And so that animal has to be stored somewhere for a day, which they may or may not have space for. Or picking your product up on time. You know, the number one cost for these meat processors is cold storage. And if their freezer is full because you didn't come and pick up your beef, they can't take another beef to be killed and processed because there's, there's no place for it to go. That's a really good point. And one of the first things you also need to be um, knowledgeable on is, is when you take that animal in, they're going to say, um, fill out that cut sheet. Yeah. What is a cut sheet? And cut sheets vary by processor, I found. Yeah. And I know some of my processors here lately have been, been calling me, and, and they're mad because people will alter their cut sheets. Oh. They want to try the newest cut they found on the internet, or they want to... They don't want ribeyes. They want it cut into something different. And they just, they're, they're running at 120% capacity now, and they just do not have the ability to, to step outside that box. Or if, if they do, you should expect an increased cost. Yeah. And, and packaging is another one of those things that will be asked. You know, when they ask, you, you know, what's the family size, that's important when it comes to, like, packaging your steaks. Yeah. Do you want two steaks per pack, three, four, one? Right. And, and the more packs, the more labor and cost, so expect to spend a little bit more. Yeah, and those vacuum package bags almost doubled in prices over the last year or two through inflation. And that, you know, they're buying 10,000, 20,000 bags at a time. That's, when that price doubles, that's a lot. That is. That's a lot. And hides are no longer worth money. You know, we used to, American tanneries used to buy all the, the hides. And so the slaughterhouse recouped some of the kill fees by selling hides. And now now the salt costs more than what the hides are worth. So they're getting composted or rendered now. And so where where that comes into play then is probably at the higher price, well, butchering fee. We would call yeah. It. It might have been fifty dollars, and now that maybe is yeah, the, yeah. Those kill fees went up forty or fifty dollars, and that that increase is what the hide was worth right. at one time. 
here in Maine, we started using hides for lobster bait. And they worked. But a hair on hide, the lobsters were getting like fur balls in their tail. And nobody wants to look at a like a something a cat yacked up in your your fifty dollar lobster, right? So uh, we 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 can use scalded pig hides because they don't have any hair, but you can't. They just didn't work for the the hair on hides or the cow hides or anything. But the composting is getting to be big. We don't have a lot of rendering capacity in Maine, and so most processors now are moving to composting all their waste. And it's actually quite valuable. You know, it can be 50 to $75 a yard for that compost. So all the greenhouse, local gardens, and those industries are, are, are buying that stuff up. And, and probably you have some, you know, the vegetable side up here too that that compost can be valuable. Yeah. Well, and, the, and one of the, the major industries that we have up here now is the marijuana, folks, because it is now recreationally and medicinally allowed in Maine. And there's just a tremendous amount of people growing that stuff. And and I thought, I don't really know anything about that industry, but I thought it would be like a couple big like corporations doing like huge fields of that stuff. Turns out it's just a ton of people raising a handful of plants in their house. So a little town might have three or four hundred grow permits. And so there's some opportunity for that compost. Yeah. Sure. And they, and they love that animal compost. They say that the plants grow better on that than it does traditional. So if you were looking, you know, continuing to think along that line of getting into direct-to-consumer marketing, um, we talked a little bit about that relationship with the processor. But what would be another thing that you would recommend folks think about before they just jump into this? Uh, one, what is your plan for the meat if it doesn't sell, you know, sometimes certain times a year, maybe hamburger doesn't sell. How are you going to get rid of that stuff? Cause you can't, like I said, that, that cold storage is a huge expense. How are you going to, are you just going to store hamburger for six months? And then you start getting into quality issues. If you keep it that long, how are you going to move? That's where your marketing plan comes in. How are you going to move products that are, that are, slow times a year and do you have to change your cut sheets throughout the year you know are you going to sell much beef roast in the summertime no are you in the winter time yeah is it more valuable for hamburger in the summer but in the winter the roasts are more valuable you know there's more and more folks uh exploring different cuts like picanha steaks or brisket you know, there was there was a time you you could probably remember brisket was worth almost nothing, and now that Texas style barbecue is spread throughout the the world, those those briskets are are really valuable. Yeah, and that's a good point. Um, further processing, maybe too, right? Some value added, yeah, yep. hot dogs or something. Along those Summer things. sausages, different things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Diversify that portfolio um, so if you, if you watch the trends you know if you, if you work with the trends you can market with those trends that's a good point yeah like something that 15 years ago if you didn't live in California you had no idea what a tri-tip was and now that's that's getting to be a popular popular cut all across the United States that's exactly right I'll never forget when I was out in San Diego at uh, Friends of my father-in-law, and the 
that's what we make these tri-tip. Oh yeah, they love those tri-tip sandwiches that's out there. That's they're that's good. the thing. Absolutely, they're good. So, um, and the other thing you mentioned there about you know, changing your product, um, inventory management becomes important if you're going to sell mm-hmm. by cuts too. Right? Absolutely. And it's not that even even if it's six months, we wouldn't maybe say that there's quality concerns, but there may be a consumer perception that well, this is not fresh. Right? Yeah. Because the dates on there is six months, so that's another thing to keep in the back of your mind is that inventory management, and you may have to run some specials and price some things down. Yeah, and and what I've seen that's been really successful with those direct marketing folks is you put together packages with clever names, uh, you know, so you get you'll get the high value ribeye steaks, but you also get some of the lower value in that same box. And, you know, if people don't know what a tri-tip is, maybe you print off a brochure to tell people how you cook that, that tri-tip. You know, you put a, put a recipe in there for some of the stuff that you might not buy if it wasn't in that package deal. There's a lot of perceived value in those bulk package deals. That, you know, maybe then they try to the tri-tip and they said, well, I like that. And they want to buy more. So Yeah, and that's, you know, you can work those like the holiday season where that roast may be yep. fitting into that family meal differently than grilling because it's December. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that it would affect me where I'm at, but up here, you know, people would probably shift more to indoor cooking in December. But thinking about those. I, here's a story for you. Uh, my neighbor was selling pork at the farmer's market. No one wanted to buy country-style spare ribs. He renamed them Grillin' Chops, and that became one of his best sellers after that. Couldn't keep them in stock. There you go. <laughs> so thinking differently, yeah. putting yourself in that consumer's mindset helps. Yeah. And, and that's the other thing, too, is I think if you're going to get into this direct consumer market, you've got to be willing to engage with your consumers and educate them a little bit, yeah. right? So you can't just be somebody that develops a product, charges this, and I don't have to do anything else. You need to be able to talk to them about your story, like you said, but also about how to fix some of these pets that maybe they're not familiar with. Yeah, you have to attract customers, and then you have to retain customers. Because I know just through my personal farm, those those repeat clients are the best. Because they know exactly what they want, and they're reliable. They come back and buy over and over again. And you mentioned listening to them. As a good example, last week I was talking to a chef, and he asked about bone marrow. Yeah. And there's an opportunity to add some value in, in bone marrow. And actually, bones in general, um, I have seen to see after the pandemic has increased, because people are making their own stocks now. Yeah. And they're, they're doing different things. And when the caveman diet was was the hottest thing, People were buying that bone marrow at, you know, $10, $15 a pound for a product we couldn't give away before. So you got to follow those trends and extract that value when you can. So, you, so becoming knowledgeable about consumer demands today and then how that's changing is going to be important. And it's, it's the same for every business, whether you're selling bubble gum or tennis shoes. You've got to know the industry and keep up with the consumer demand if you expect to stay in business long term. 
think about it from a business perspective. Mm -hmm. All right, Cole, this has been great. Um, we're getting up here on time now, but if, is there just one last thing that you would recommend, or you think we've covered this pretty well to get somebody thinking about that consumer marketing? I, there's always room for creativity in the farming business. You don't have to do it the same way that the generation before did it. That's a good point. And be willing, be willing to learn as well, right? And yeah. Be that lifelong learner that we talk about trying to be all the time to maybe, maybe not sink everything into that change, but try it and experiment. Yep. That's a good point. Well, thanks, Coach, for joining us again, and uh, we sure appreciate the, the value that you shared from your perspective up here in Maine and the producers that you work with. Um, we'll have to see if we can get one more of these done, maybe, and uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about some different things, but be sure to check out our other uh, podcast we did with Colt up here. Colt, thanks a bunch for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for coming out. Thank you for listening to this session of the Beef Bits Podcast. I hope you found today's episode informative and that it added to your knowledge of beef cattle management. Be sure to subscribe to be notified when the next episode is released. And if you haven't listened to the previous sessions, be sure to go check them out. For more information on beef cattle management tips, stop in and see your local county extension agent. If you have questions, you can also send them to us and we'll be happy to reply as soon as we can. Take care and we look forward to seeing you in the future.